Welcome to the Travel Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Callie O'Connor. I've gone from career burnout to taking multiple career breaks, scoring several remote jobs, and even starting my own business while traveling to over 80 countries. The one thing that held me back from starting sooner was that I didn't believe it was possible for me. I wasn't aware that travel could become part of my lifestyle. Through this podcast, I'm so excited to share with you the travel possibilities that are out there for you. In season two, we're talking all about remote work. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Travel Possibilities Podcast. I am your host, Callie O'Connor. And if you tune in here regularly, you might have noticed a little bit of a break the past few weeks. So thanks for bearing with me and welcome back. I'm glad you're back and I'm so excited to continue season two and continue talking about remote work because it's becoming more and more popular and important to talk about given this state of the world and people being asked to return to work and people realizing that maybe they just don't want to do that. And the thing is, you don't have to. Us employees sort of have the power in this situation. So with all of that said, I have another great interview today. I'm a fabulous guest that I'd like to introduce you to. So Carrie Knowles is an author, journalist, artist, and speaker. She's the author of eight books, four novels, and four nonfiction. She also pens a regular column for Psychology Today called Shifting Forward, A Wanderer's Musings. And we talk a little bit about how she got into that. And it's very interesting. So Carrie was also named the Piedmont Laureate for short fiction in 2014. Her short stories have won more than 25 awards, including the Village Advocate Fiction Contest, the Blumenthal Writers and Readers Series, the North Carolina Writers Network Fiction Syndication, and Glimmer Train's Very Short Fiction Competition. And she's also been named a finalist in the Glimmer Train competitions six times. And so this is all very cool and impressive. And like, she's so awesome to talk to. Um, But also, Carrie has taken her writings abroad. She has been traveling and writing for a lot of her life. And she'd bring her family along. So we have a great conversation in this episode. I'm so excited to share it with you. And so if you're an aspiring writer, if you're looking to freelance, this is absolutely the episode for you. Here it is. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Travel Possibilities Podcast. I have another awesome interview episode for you today. And my guest is Carrie Knowles. So I'm going to hand it over to her to introduce herself. Hi, so I'm Carrie Knowles, and um, I am a writer and also a visual artist, and um, I have been writing professionally. Actually, um, I started writing professionally as a freelancer when I was in college, Um, and back in the 60s, it was possible to, um, I had to pay for school on my own. Uh, my parents didn't have the money to send me, and I, I wound up um, working for a radio station, um, doing uh, promotional writing for WXYZ Radio in Detroit. And then um, when I was a junior in college, I took a job um, writing speedboat, motorcycle, and drag race articles for uh, an outdoor sports magazine called Competitive Breed in Michigan. And I would leave school um, every Friday afternoon and I would travel with a a mechanic and an editor and a photographer. And we would go all over the state of Michigan and we would cover all these races and I would do interviews and I would cover the races, but primarily I I wasn't reporting on the races as much as I was doing uh, profiles of people involved in the races. And then I would come home Sunday night and then I would stay up all night Sunday night and I would write my copy, turn it in Monday morning and then go to school. And so I paid for my last two years of college by freelance writing like that and doing other types of writing. And uh, I enjoyed it um, and was fairly good at it and decided, well, I know how to do this and it's fun and it'll be an interesting life. And so that's what I've always done. I have done some teaching and some lecturing. Um, I have a few private students 
Um, I'm not teaching at a regular basis anywhere. And basically I, I write, that's what I do. That is so exciting. And that's such a cool way to get started in writing and like who would speedboat racing. That's awesome. All around Michigan. So how did you get started in freelancing? Well, I needed a job and I saw an ad for this job with WXYZ radio and I applied and got it and um, fell in love with radio and uh, promotional work. And then my boss got fired. And um, at that time, you know, if the head person in, in a comms department got fired, everybody got fired. So before he got fired, he called everybody in and said, find a new job quick. Um, and then I did some teaching um, at that time in, in the mid 60s in Detroit. Um, you could teach in the inner city with, um, I think it was 32 or 33 hours. Um, you could, you know, be a substitute teacher or whatever. And so I did a little teaching and then I saw an ad for this job with this competitive breed. And I went to them and I said, look, you know, and they said, um, you're a girl. And I said, yeah, I knew that, you know, <laughs> thank you. And so I told them, I said, look, um, I said, I'll write two articles for you. And if you like them and you print them, you have to hire me. And if you don't like them, you don't, and you don't print them, you don't have to pay for them. And that's the end of the story. And so that's how I got the job. And then I became the freelancer that did that. So I've freelanced for a lot of different magazines. So I did that until I graduated from college. And then I worked for W, I worked for the Detroit News for a while. And then I went to Chicago and I freelanced there and um, did a little teaching and um, just have always been a freelance writer. And I, I want to, you know, you would ask a, a question earlier about, you know, what would you say to young people who want to write? Um, and I usually, if I'm lecturing at a college or somewhere, I tell people that if you have ever turned a paper in late um, for anything, then this is not the life for you. You don't, this is, this is not what you should be doing. Um, and the other thing is, if you don't like research, you shouldn't be doing this either. Um, you should find something else you want to do. You know, writing, good writing takes a lot of research. And especially if you're freelancing, you know, somebody asks you, can you write an article about blah, 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 whatever, um, you know, making macaroons, I don't care what it is. The answer is always yes. And then you quickly go and do all the research as to how do you make a macaroon? How do you do this? How do you do that? And then you experiment a while, then you turn in, you know, you write an article about it and that's the way it goes. Um, so, and the other thing is, is somebody said to me recently, they had worked on something and they said, oh, you know, what, what a waste, you know, I'll never use that. And I say, never say that, you know, any freelance job you have is material for something else you know, becomes, and, and I think you have to have a lot of curiosity about the world. You have to be um, willing to look and be engaged in what's going on. And um, I am surprisingly introverted, um, but in my role professionally, I managed to be extroverted. Um, I, I'm not so sure I like Zoom as much as I like not being on Zoom or whatever. <laughs> but that's the mode now. So, okay, fine, I'm here. Um, but I think you have to have a lot of energy and curiosity and uh, willingness to try a lot of different things. The other thing is to be passionate about something, to find something that you um, are so interested in that you're willing to dig that has nothing to do with writing an article. So, um, and you can stop me anytime that I regress on things. <laughs> but, um, a number of years ago, um, when we had small kids at home, on uh, I think on Thursdays, the local newspaper did the food section. And I was sitting with the kids over breakfast one morning, uh, getting them ready for school, getting them ready to get out the door. And I was reading the food section and it was a pretty crummy article. And I thought to myself, you know, there are thousands of women right now and they've got two or three kids to get to school. And the food section may be the only piece of the paper they get to read that day, and they ought to have something better to read than this. 
So I started writing food articles and um, I wrote food articles for, I don't know, three or four publications. And then um, I got a job as a restaurant reviewer. And then um, I became the only freelancer for Better Homes and Gardens. Um, and it's sort of like things just happen. You know, if you get really good at what you're doing and you know a lot about what you're writing about, people pay attention. And there you are. You sort of things move naturally along. Um, so anyway, that, there you go. Amazing. <laughs> okay. So this is so interesting. And I have a lot of questions to follow up with and a lot of things to unpack. So first, like, I love your confidence and how you got that first job where you said, I will write you two articles. If you like it, hire me. If you don't, then whatever, you don't need to pay for them. Is that the approach you've taken throughout your career to find more work? Um, a little bit, but I mean, that was, a, a, an exceptional, um, I did. Yeah, sort of. It's, it, you know, it's kind of like when people say, well, can you? And you say, well, of course I can. No problem. Um, and, um, you know, I had an interesting thing happen about four years ago. Um, I reissued a book I wrote, um, a nonfiction book about Alzheimer's called The Last Childhood. It's about the impact of Alzheimer's on the family. And it was first published by Random House and then, you know, they quit handling it. And, and then many things happened with Alzheimer's and I rewrote, I, I wrote the ending of the book. You know, I changed the ending of the book and wrote five additional chapters with new research and this and that. Anyway, brought that out myself because nobody else was interested in reissuing a book that had been out. And um, I had a, a firm like Hannah who worked with me and uh, so we sent out a notification. They sent out, I didn't. They sent out a notification all over saying that this is a reissue and there's new chapters, new information and blah, blah, blah. And I get a call from them and they say um, that uh, Psychology Today uh, wants to talk with you and about writing. And they thought, and I thought quite honestly, that they wanted me to write about Alzheimer's. So being the freelancer I am, and that's, that's another thing. If somebody says, do you want to do this? You say yes. And then you try to figure out what else you might write for them. And then you outline those so that you're always going back to them with, a, here's the article. If you like that article, I've got four other ideas. So you build for yourself what's going on. So I said to um, Claremont, who was handling my communications at that time, I said, give me a week and I'll, let me come up with four ideas. So I outlined four ideas about articles about Alzheimer's. And she set up this, they set up a call with, um, you know, with psychology today. And there I was the, you know, good little freelancer. And I knew how to do this. And I've been a pro for, you know, whatever. And I have my four ideas and I've outlined them and I start in on my presentation and they go, whoa, 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 stop, stop. We don't want you to write about Alzheimer's. And I said, oh, okay, fine. And I said, I just want to thank you for having an opportunity to talk with you. It's real. I'm really honored that you wanted to talk with me. But they said, no, 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 no. Don't hang up. They said, we really, we've read some of your work. We really love the way you write. And we want you to write a column for us. And I went, you want me to write a column? Yeah. And they said, we want you to, we want you to write a column for our online presence. We want to sort of expand things a little bit. And we really like your work and uh, we want you to write a column. And I said, about Alzheimer's? And they said, no, 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 no. We don't want you to write about Alzheimer's. And I said, okay, what do you want me to write about? And they said, we want you to write about anything you want to write about. And I was just, you have to understand, I've spent 50 some years getting assignments from editors and magazines and newspapers. And it's not that I'm not a creative person, but I'm used to somebody saying initially at least, we want you to write about this. And I said, well, can you define everything for me? And they said, well, actually everything or anything that sort of piques your interest is, we want to hear it. And uh, you, know, you have basically 700 to 900 words to do it in. And we'd love it if you did it once a month. And I went, okay. So what a gift. I mean, what an incredible gift at this point in my career for somebody to say, just write about whatever. So I write a column, it's called Shifting Forward. And my next book, which is my ninth book, actually, uh, which is coming out this May, um, is called Shifting Forward, which is the title of my column. And it's the first 50 columns I've written for Psychology Today. 
And it's anything and everything from fresh tomatoes to you name it, to traveling with less luggage to it's sort of reflections on the world and um, traveling and, you know, um, stepping out of your comfort zone. It's a lot of what your podcast is about, actually. Perfect. And like, yeah. that's, you set me up for the perfect transition. But before we transition, I have one more quick question. Sure. Because you had talked about finding something you're passionate about outside of writing. And I'm wondering what that was for you. Boy, that was, um, well, there was the passion of making enough money to survive. That was one of my passions. <laughs> I think we're all passionate about that. <laughs> some people less so than others. I um, you know, some people think it should just fall out of the sky. I, I never quite got that far. Um, I, I became very interested in food because it's the sharing a meal is the one thing that any and all of us can do, no matter what our um, economic situation is or our age or whatever, you know, to share a meal is one of the most powerful things you can do in life with someone. And that fascinated me. And then food fascinated me. And food is like traveling, you know, um, we uh, went and this will give you another segue. <laughs> we lived in, in Avignon, France uh, during the first Gulf War. And uh, we had three kids with us. One of them was an infant and we have a nine-year-old, five-year-old and an infant. And um, we were living in France and in Avignon in Southern France. And we had rented a, a house, a little house, a little place. And uh, we were on lock and we were on curfew because there was the Gulf War and we were very close to, you know, things going on. And, and so this house was very interesting. It was a family house that had been many, many generations had owned this house and they were renting it out now. And it was very tiny and um, a very typical French, Southern French house, um, row house in, in Avignon, outside of the ramparts in Avignon. Um, and it had five complete sets of China, each of them different you know, fancier than the other one. And so here we were with three kids um, in this beautiful city in Southern France, which is not how we thought we were gonna be there. And we couldn't travel, we couldn't go places because we were in the middle of the first Gulf War. And so, and we had kids. And so we, I turned it into a game of every night we would quote unquote, travel someplace else with a different kind of food. And we would set the table with this fancy, you know, China and silverware and whatever. And every night we would eat off of different dishes and it was just really fun. And uh, so I think food is fun. So I, I be, I'm pretty passionate about food and I'm a fairly good cook now because I've made everything that I've written about. And um, so I guess my passion is food and children, grandchildren and writing. Writing is a passion. Yeah. I love that so much. And what a cool story. And I bet your older kids still remember eating off the different dishes and yeah. eating around the world like that. It was fun. A lot of fun. Yeah. So you lived in France. Can you talk, what got you to the point where you're like, okay, is it because you had this freelance job that you are able to travel? Like what got you to start living abroad? Hmm. Well, the first time I lived abroad was when I was in college. Um, it was 1969. And there were, I'm also very much interested in the arts. I guess that's a passion as well. Theater and music and painting and whatever. And um uh, I was one of 50 American students chosen across the United States to go to um, Dublin, Ireland. And it was 1969 during the Troubles. If you've watched Belfast, that's, you know, that's Northern Ireland. We were in, um, you know, the Republic down below and, in, and uh, in Dublin. And that was the first time I'd ever lived out of the country. And it was fascinating to me. I mean, it was just, first of all, you know, you can see me, they can't. But first of all, I, I grew up in a German-Polish neighborhood, a uh, little town, and um, with Hasselbacks and Wiwaperwitz and you name it. And uh, I got off the plane in Dublin 
And I looked around and I thought, oh my God, they all look like me. And it was the first time I realized how Irish I look. I had not really identified myself as Irish because I grew up with these Germans and these Poles. And uh, there I was in Ireland and you know, people were sort of stunned because I, I looked like, I honestly looked like everybody else who was walking around Dublin, except for I had American blue jeans on. Um, so I became very smitten by that time. And also, you know, even though, um, which is an interesting thing, even though I was in a country that quote unquote spoke English, well, they did speak English, just like people in Australia speak English, except for there are many things, nuances in the language that are very unlike American English. And so it was like a real learning situation to kind of say, whoa, you know, that's, we speak the same language, but we don't. We culturally, we're talking about different things. Um, so that was exciting to me. And then um, my husband is an, you know, he's retired now, uh, was an academic. And so we wound up living in France um, because he was on sabbatical and he wanted to get away far enough to be able to do this writing that he needed to do. And he's a, um, a French speaker and uh, he wanted to be in France. And so we lived in France and which was fun, wanted to sort of hone his French skills. I can shop in French, but I, uh, you know, and I have a good French vocabulary, but I get very uh, stymied, you know, I'm like, you know, when it comes to like forming sentences, but Absolutely, I, I, get it. <laughs> I understand what's going on. And then I did some work in South Africa, um, spent a couple months there. Um, and it's different working in a country and living in a country than it is visiting a country. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I'm very portable. My husband likes to travel and our kids like to travel. So we often would take six weeks in the summer and go somewhere, which is not the usual American thing, but we have that option to do that. And I just needed to meet my deadlines. And, and you know, because of the internet, I was able to do that. Uh, which was nice, um, sort of nice. And then we lived in Australia three different times. And um, when we lived in France, we had an experience where we had our two older kids, our nine-year-old and our five-year-old at that time, we hired a French tutor so that they would at least be able to say, hello, how are you? My name is, you know, oh, it's raining today or whatever. And it took them and they went to, we put them in public French schools and um, they, uh, it took them three months to acclimate and to like grab onto the language and run with it. And um, in fact, our older son, the not, who was the nine-year-old at that time, he now lives in Brussels. He's a professional musician in Europe, a uh, classically trained musician. And it's our fault that he's there because- <laughs> Okay, you know, it's like, be careful what you do, because <laughs> your children will take it and run with it as well. And then so when we uh, lived in Australia, the first time, um, we, uh, you know, didn't think to hire an Australian speech coach for our then high school age student, you know, son. And we go to Australia, it took him the same three months that it took our kids to catch on to French, for him to catch on to the cultural differences in language in Australia. So that was really fascinating to me that, um, and you know, at that time, you know, I had sort of lived in different, you know, I lived and worked in several different countries and I was used to kind of very quick, quick, you know, clicking into it and finding out what was going on and being able to not embarrass myself. But, you know, he was a kid and uh, so it was, amazing to watch those first three months were a struggle and then at the end of three months he got it and he was culturally appropriate and in the groove and he went to a local you know Australian high school um, and uh, so we just had great fun traveling and living in other countries and we spend a lot of time because our older son uh, is in Brussels two grandsons in Brussels and um, so we used to go to Brussels twice a year for a month or so and we haven't been able to do that during COVID obviously you know but anyway travel a lot. That is awesome and do you mind speaking a little bit more and like now that your kids are grown like what is their perspective of the time spent abroad in their childhood are they like really thankful for the experience because 
Oh, very much so. You know, I think that it's the absolute best gift we ever we ever gave our three kids. And I think putting them in local schools was tough, you know, because they had, you know, they were the American kids. And so that's a big jump. Um, we're not always loved in every country. Um, but they had to quickly fend for themselves and learn. And I think the most interesting thing to watch was all three of the kids came to a realization on their own that the gift of traveling like that and living in, living in another country, not just visiting another country, but actually living in another country and going to school in another country was they learned that there's more than one way to do something right. And we have a sense that, well, you see it with religions, well, there's only one right religion. Well, there's not just one right religion. And there's not just one right way to set the table. And there's not just one right way to eat custard. I was laughing with somebody the other day who said, oh, I just had this fantastic pot de creme and it was just fabulous. And I laughed and I said, well, you know, that's, it's such a common dish in France and um, it's such a wonderful thing. I said, but you know, the French, serve it with a very large spoon, you know, like these little pot de creme, you know, things. And uh, desserts are served not with what we serve them with, which is a small spoon, but with a large spoon. And we used to go to this local restaurant um, with the kids and uh, where the workers would go in the central city, you know, in the central business district. Um, when they had a day off from school, we would go into the cent central business district and we would all go out to lunch. And it was really fun. And it was always the plat du jour. You know, there was no choices to make. You either had the plat du jour, or you had an omelette with frites, you know, that was it. And it was always a three course meal. And what? And so this one day we were there and there were all of these construction workers who were tearing up the street and rebuilding everything. And they all came in and their construction clothes and they sat at the table next to us and you know, of course, with a plat du jour, you get a little thing of wine. They were all drinking, you know, France, whatever. And then the dessert came, which was pot de creme and these tiny little white, you know, traditional dishes. And they all grabbed the large spoon and there they were in their hard hats. And they were, you know, eating and the kids were just so tickled by that. It was like, it seemed such a fancy thing. And here were these workers who knew which spoon to use to eat the pot de creme, you know. Mm -hmm. And so they, they learned that there's, they learned that there was one more than one right way to do something. And they're all good travelers. They're all willing to up sticks, as they say in Australia, and go somewhere and have an adventure, which is, I think, wonderful. wonderful. I love that. That's so great. Yeah, I talk with a lot. I'm on Clubhouse quite often, and we often get parents who are like, we want to do this, but we're worried about our kids. And so it's great that you have the firsthand perspective to share. So I really appreciate that. And so you've traveled quite a bit, and you're a writer. Are there any specific destinations that have really inspired you and inspired your writing? Um, I think it's less the destination than it is the people and the cultures around it um, that have been fascinating. The other thing, because we've um, been more than tourists, we've actually lived and worked um, in different countries, both of us, both my husband and I have. Um, and I, I think that you, even though you're working, you're being hired to do something for people and you're in a different, you know, you, you are still an outsider. And I think if you read my short stories or my articles, a lot of it has to do with, be careful, you know, you're an outsider and, um, you know, you have to behave yourself for one thing. And the other thing is, is just, you know, being observant as to what's going on because you, you want to be a good visitor. You don't want to, you know, be the ugly American or whatever, or the ugly German or the ugly whoever you are. You know, we we think that there's just ugly Americans. Well, well, there's ugly Germans and there's ugly, you know, French and there's that, you know, the French can be super rude, you know, but they but they can be also very very charming, um, and so it's a lot. What you learn in traveling, it's a lot of just hang back a little bit and watch, pay attention. You know, it's not about you. 
figure out what's going on and also be careful not to judge you know don't don't go saying well they've done that wrong you know they're using the big spoon and they should be using the small spoon no they use the big spoon you should be using the big spoon as well you know and a lot of people like the whole thing with you know we switch our our you know we cut with our right hand knife and then we switch the fork back into our right hand to eat and the french and the germans and you know they don't do that you know they and so pay attention try to be part of what's going on not just you know slip into the hotel and then go have a mai tai or whatever and then you know, spend the time. I think my favorite things that I always do in every country um, that we either visit or live in or work in is um, my two favorite places are one, the grocery store, um, because I think that's very telling as to how people live and what they do. You know, when you, uh, I remember the first time I went grocery shopping in France and I discovered almost an entire aisle of nothing but butter cookies and chocolate. And I thought, whoa, okay, you know? And in the United States, we have an entire aisle of cereal and they're like, why do you have so many cereals, you know? And that, that seems normal to us, but for them, it's like, you know, you got the right butter cookie, you know? Um, and the other thing is hardware stores. I love hardware stores because you really, you know, it's like all those little gadgets, they're very different than the things that we're building and making with. And there's a lot to learn, you know, there's really just a lot to learn. And that's, you know, it's not just that there's good food to eat. There's a lot to learn when you travel. Absolutely. And so in those instances, when you were more traveling for those six weeks in the summer or whatnot, how were you able to balance your work and your deadlines with experiencing the destinations you were in? Mm, that was a juggling act, especially with three kids who ranged in age from, you know, they were, you know, we had a nine year spread of kids. Um, let me just say something about that, which is, um, that it's, you know, if you're traveling with kids, um, one of the nice things in Europe, and you can, you can do this also in the United States, but not quite as easily. Well, that's not true. Um, we always tried to find a hotel or a place that had a balcony. We have a room with a balcony so that we weren't, uh, we could, you know, one of us would go out and pick up dessert or a bottle of wine or whatever. And once the kids were in bed, we would sit on the balcony and enjoy the evening instead of being like a captive, you know, in the, in the quiet room. Um, and the other thing is to understand that your kids have to be able to have their level of um, experience that's appropriate for them for that time. That if you're dragging them around to things that you're interested in that are not where they are, then you're not going to enjoy, nobody's going to have a good time. So we used to, and especially since we had a nine year spread with our kids, and I will get back to the question of how I did my work. The nine year spread with the kids is we would designate, um, you know, every kid would get one day that they could call all the shots from breakfast to dinner. And then the other two kids would have to go, nobody could say, oh, I don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> And so that gave a challenge to them to figure out what they wanted to do where we were, you know, um, and, um, and it, it was a wonderful way to travel with them because it really forced them to pay attention to what were the possibilities there. And also, you know, I, I won't pretend that it wasn't competitive at some times, you know, for our daughter, um, who is the middle child, she always wanted to do something physical that then she could beat the boys at. I remember one time we were out West and we were hiking, you know, she said, okay, her day was blah, 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 you know, breakfast here, this, that, and then we're going to hike this, you know, Canyon or whatever. And she, we were hiking and um, she turned to the boys and she said, are you tired yet? They went, no. She said, okay, let's keep going. And so are you tired yet? Nope. 
okay, let's keep going. And then at one point they were just so exhausted and they said, okay, we've had it. We're done. We're tired. And she said, sit here. I'll be back in a half an hour. And then she would hike another half an hour just to show them that she could beat them at everything. So, you know, but that's very, that was very typical, you know, of what went on, but everybody got a say. And so they weren't crabby when we said, oh, we want to go and do this. They'd go, okay, fine. We'll do that with you. Um, and so that's important. Um, the other thing is that you cannot, I don't care how old the kid is, you cannot drag them to restaurants three meals out of the day. You just can't do it. That's just too squirmy. It's too awful. Mm -hmm. It's too demanding. There's, you know, then there's a menu in which it's in a different language and they're like, what the hell is this? You know? So we always had one picnic meal a day. We would have to, we would try to get, um, you know, a, a small, uh, you know, petit déjeuner, uh, you know, in our hotel. Um, and then we would, you know, maybe go to a nice restaurant for lunch. But then in the afternoon, as we were going around, we would pick up a picnic for dinner. And then we would spread a blanket on the floor at the hotel and eat a picnic in the hotel for dinner. Because um, it was too much to ask of them to behave in public like that for three, three meals. It was like out of the question that wasn't happening. Um, and so we had great fun. We had great fun going to the markets and picking, you know, trying out little foods. So nobody was confined by a menu, um, to eat, uh, 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 in a really nice restaurant for lunch was less expensive than doing it at dinner. And, you know, European countries and many other countries outside of the United States, dinner doesn't start till eight o'clock, you know, which is late for a little kid. Yeah. So we would, you know, we would have a picnic and, you know, in the hotel or at a park or whatever. So, and it worked. So <laughs> making my deadlines, uh, sometimes I would have, we would go someplace because I had an assignment to write an article about something. And so we would try, I would try to turn, not we, I would try to turn it into, oh, we need to go here, you know, and this is going to be fun. And, you know, we'll do blah, blah, blah. And then I would, um, you know, have to sneak off to the hotel and work for a while, um, which always wasn't always welcomed by the kids. You know, they didn't like that I was working when we traveled, but that was just the way of life, you know? Yep. <laughs> So yeah, it sounds like you manage, it's just, you have deadlines and that's a non-negotiable. So it is. Yeah. And they understood that it was in fact, non-negotiable, that that was a dead line. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't meet it, that I would come home and there would be no job for me. So, you know, they, but you know, they only got crabby about it sometimes, but it, it was a little harried and often, you know, if I could do it, I would do it after they went to bed. But sometimes I would have to make phone calls and talk with an editor or, you know, call somebody I had interviewed and just go over some issues with them. So I'd be in the hotel room for, they'd be at the pool or whatever, you know, yeah. going up with dad doing stuff. <laughs> awesome. Well, I know you have a short story collection based on your travels. So is there a particular story that you're really proud of that you want to talk about or just one well, I, in particular that stands out? Yeah. Um, not, I mean, I think for some people, they would read the short story collection and they wouldn't, um, they would say, well, this one is a foreign travel and this one's a foreign travel and this one's a foreign travel. But I don't think that they're all foreign. You know, I don't think that they're all travel things. And so I think it's really important to read, especially since COVID, to redefine what travel is and um, what, you know, getting out of your comfort zone. Um, that's the beauty of traveling is it forces you not to be who you were before, you know, makes you be some, makes you sort of see the world in a different way. And so in all the short stories that are in this collection, people see themselves differently because they, something has happened. They've had to pay attention. There's um, two stories that I, I really, well, there's three stories in the book that I think are really important in terms of um, understanding what travel is and what being in a foreign country is. Um, and one of them is, is called Hopscotch. Um, and that is based on my husband and I 
um, we've three times now driven across the United States. Um, and the last time we did it, uh, we were taking a, a truck of furniture out to our daughter and our son-in-law out in California. And we took the Southern route where we live in North Carolina and we took the Southern route, which took us the far Southern route and which took us um, close to the Rio Grande in Texas. And um, it was early in the morning and we saw a car um, with uh, tires, you know, dragging tires behind it. And then we realized what was going on is they were checking for footprints to see if people had crossed the Rio Grande at night. And we had seen the same thing. Oh, we also lived, spent quite a bit of time in Israel, which was, that was fascinating. Um, and we saw the same thing there, you know, where, uh, you know, border patrol people were in Palestine, you know, they were checking for footprints. And, you know, that here we were in our own country, but that story about, you know, the person, that's what that story is about is, you know, the person who has to drive the car, checking for the footprints and she sees footprints and she knows that it's, uh, you know, that probably a child and, you know, and sees the footprints like a hopscotch, you know, one foot, two foot, one foot, two foot. Um, and it's her dilemma about what does she do? Does she report it or not report it? So, so it's a, a responsibility. Um, and then uh, there's another story called The Black Backpack, which um, takes place in, in Brussels. Uh, like I said, we spend a lot of time in Brussels in that part of Europe. And um, it's a story, you know, that we were there during one of the one of the bombings um, and uh, with the airport. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there was all this alert about black backpacks and blah, blah, blah. And it's the story of somebody whose husband is working with, uh, um, with NATO, whatever. And he's a, he's a negotiator and um, he's brought in and they live, have lived all over the country. And she, is always just a little nervous because she knows that the only reason that they're there is there's a problem. You know, he only goes to where there's a problem. And so she's on a bus and um, she's not been happy with this particular assignment because she feels quite isolated because these things are going on and she's on a bus and she sees a young man get up and leave a black backpack and she doesn't, and everybody, she doesn't know what to do. And everybody freezes on the bus. And, um, you know, she blurts out, you know, she yells at the young man, you're black, your backpack, you left your backpack. And of course, everybody's afraid to say that because if he's a bomber, you know, he's, he's off that. But he thanked her, turned around, picked up the backpack and got off and everybody relaxed. And so I really love that story. And then Another, but it's more than that in the story. Um, it's hard to explain a story in such a quick time. And the other one is um, we spent some time, my husband was a, uh, an educational ambassador in Turkey and we spent some time in Turkey. And um, I, I got to go along. And I think that the people who organized the trip thought that, oh, goody, we get a writer. And it was like, oh, goody, I'm not, I don't have an assignment. You know, <laughs> I just didn't go, you know? Um, and I think everybody thought that I was going to write an article about being in, um, being in Turkey. And so this is a story about, you know, someone who whose spouse expects them to be writing a story. And the story for them is that, um, and, you know, we traveled around with my, you know, with, with this group visiting elementary schools, high schools, colleges, you know, we were all over the place um, and uh, in Turkey and, um, you know, all the children were well-behaved and recited things for them. And, you know, it was all a bit of a performance, you know, and we would do the same thing. And the person who's a writer in this story says, did you believe what we saw to his, you know, he, it, it's a man in this story. And he says to his wife, did you, did you really believe what we saw? And she said, well, well, you know, and, and he, he's uncomfortable because he realizes 
what he, because of the situation of how he was traveling, that he didn't get to see the real thing. And also, you know, the, the judging, you know, it's like they were there to judge and uh, he was uncomfortable with that, you know, that they were there to judge. And so. I love all of the, like, it's just such real and realistic themes and makes you think. So that's really interesting. And so we're going to link your website and everything so people can learn more about you and where to find your work, because I mean, those sound like awesome stories. I'm sure some people will be wanting to check those out. And so Carrie, thank you so much for being here. And I want to be mindful of your time. And I'm so fascinated by your stories, just speaking with you. So it's no wonder that people love to read your writing, but do you have any last words of advice for someone who wants more travel in their life, but they're kind of just feeling stuck in their job, they're stuck in their location dependence. Like what would you advise someone who feels like that? Well, I mean, I think that we all feel, don't you feel a little stuck with COVID? Don't you feel like you've been, you know, in a, inside just like a wee bit too much. And I just read something in the New York times this morning in the business section about, um, Hey, we're not okay. We're not all okay. You know, everybody's a little nervous. Um, and, and, uh, I think we're all going to remain, you know, it's, it's, we're entering a new world and I think we need to recognize that. And I think we also need to redefine what travel is and, you know, that experience, you don't have to hop on a plane. You don't have to get on a boat. I mean, it's just to go to another town that you've never been in. I love Julie Cameron's, um, she encourages people to go on what she calls artist dates in which you get out of your, go someplace where you're, you're not used to going so that you are the stranger there and you have to look closely to know how to handle yourself. And I think that in this post or I hope post COVID time that people will take it in baby steps and get comfortable and they'll go to a city they've never been to before, or their goal to us, if they live in a city, they'll go to a small town. Um, We have the great privilege of owning a home in Oberlin, Ohio, where our daughter and son-in-law are, and and two of our grandchildren. And uh, so it's this tiny, Oberlin is like, you know, about the size of my living room. I mean, it's, I love (laughs) Oberlin, but our our home there is between two cornfields. And when we go there, we live completely differently than we do when we're here. And we're about ready to leave here and move to DC to be with our other, some other grandchildren. And, you know, to me, that's the most exciting point in my life is that I can have a home in a very small um, community, Midwestern community, and in a very bustling, you know, um, culturally rich town. And so I have the best of both worlds. And I think that we all need to look at where's the best of both worlds for us. You know, don't just have dinner in the town you live in, go to the next town, you know, go to someplace you've never been before. If you don't eat barbecue, go to the barbecue joint, find out what do you eat with your fingers? I mean, what do you do? You know, Um, many years ago, we were on the Maryland shore and um, we went to a crab house place and they literally, they had brown paper on the tables and they just dumped the steamed, you know, they just dumped the stuff on the table and, and you just ate with your hand, you know, it yeah. was wonderful, you know, and I'm sure that there are people going, uh, could I have a knife and a fork, please? And, uh, where's my plate? You know, there was no plate. There was no plate. Just a so, little hammer. <laughs> a little hammer, right. You know, so... Uh, it's so important if we're going to survive all of this, that we take those steps and, you know, learn something about other people other than ourselves, especially because our country is so divided. You know, it's an eye opener to live in Ohio in, you know, in a farm community, we basically live in a farm community that happens to have a really fine college in it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, to sort of take a deep breath and sit back and say, what's it like to be a farmer? 
what, you know, I go to your farm stand every week because I, you know, that's where I go shop now. So tell me about what's coming up next. What are you, what are you growing? Why are, you know, what's good? What's not good? What should I be trying? Um, you know, talk to people and learn things. Um, I mean, that's just, that's what traveling is all about. And you don't have to go far. You don't have to travel far to have a real life experience. Absolutely. And it's such a good point. And I mean, I feel really strongly about this and I can go into it forever, but the way we're traveling now internationally is not sustainable. So stepping back and taking the, in those local experiences is one way to stop the overcrowdedness of some of those really popular destinations that everyone wants to go to because of what they've seen online and on social media. But again, I want to be mindful of your time and I don't want to open that can of worms. I do love that conversation. And I do absolutely love that perspective of keeping it local and taking small steps and traveling can be anywhere and everywhere. And it doesn't have to be a big excursion to the other side of the world. So it doesn't. And, you know, take an architectural tour of your own little town, you know, find out the history. Be, you know, somebody said uh, at the beginning of COVID that they were going to become a tourist of the town that they've lived in their whole lives. And they were going to follow the tour guide for their own town and rediscover their own town. And I think that maybe that's what we need to do is be a tourist in our own time, in our own place. And um, we're all tourists. We're all visitors. And we should learn to be good visitors. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Well, Carrie, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your insight and your amazing stories. And thank you for being here. Um, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you? I will also link this in the show notes. So for easy access. It's um, C-J-A-N-E-W-O-R-K, cjanework.com. And you'll find out about all my books and also um, about my, a little bit about my artwork and a little bit about my columns. And um, I, th I think the best way to keep up with me these days is through the Psych Today column, which is an absolute joy for me to write. Um, I'm actually, my next article is going to be about um, uh, life before bubble wrap, you know, it's because <laughs> I'm now downsizing for like the third time in my life. And, uh, and I'm thinking, didn't I do this with newspaper, but nobody gets a newspaper anymore. I mean, you know, and now I have like tons of bubble wrap that I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of hoarding bubble wrap from other people who are, you know, who want to throw it away. And I go, don't throw it away. I mean, you know, it doesn't deteriorate. Let's <laughs> So it's like life before bubble wrap. You know, what did we do? How did we move from place to place? You know, <laughs> liquor boxes and, and newspaper. That's how we I did love it. it. That's awesome. That is fantastic. All right. Well, Carrie, thank you again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I will catch you on the next episode. Great. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Travel Possibilities Podcast. If you liked what you heard, I would be so thankful for your positive review on Apple Podcasts so I can keep the episodes coming. If you aren't already following me on social media, come soak up the extra tips and travel inspiration on Instagram by following me at The Travel Shifters or by visiting my website at travelshifters.com. Thank you so much for being here and I can't wait to connect with you in the next episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it.